Thank you, Doug. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to be preaching to you all this morning. Merry Christmas. It's one of the best times of the year. We are going to be in Isaiah 9 this morning. If you all want to go ahead and turn there with me, we will be reading verses 1 through 7. Well, for the last four years, I have developed a tradition for myself where after I am done with Thanksgiving lunch with family in Gatlinburg, I get in my car and I immediately turn on Christmas music. Because at that point, I start to get excited for the Christmas season and I don't have to worry about anyone around me complaining that I'm listening to Christmas music too soon anymore. Everyone complains about Thanksgiving or maybe Halloween, right? But now is the time to start listening to Christmas music. And so when it comes to Christmas music, there's this playlist on Apple Music that's called Essential Christmas. Now, for those who have Spotify as their music service, that's okay. We live in a fallen world. Our church has, our church has a wonderful biblical counseling ministry just for people like you. So anyways... Uh, this playlist is called Essential Christmas uh, because it basically has every song that you could imagine that you should listen to during the Christmas season. And this playlist is long. There's 90 songs on this thing, and it goes for about five hours. It about five hours long. And so last Thursday, I started listening to this playlist without skipping any songs because I was that excited for Christmas even listening to the horrible overplayed songs, which I'm not going to name here. I don't want to offend anyone. And so from Thursday afternoon, in moments where I was driving home or walking my dog or cleaning my house or making food or just driving around Knoxville, I finished this five-hour, 90-song playlist the next Friday evening. I got all the way through this playlist. And there was a sense of accomplishment in that, not going to lie. And with that came a feeling, a level of festivity that I reached by the end of this playlist. But then that sense of accomplishment was immediately replaced with a wave of shock and a wave of disappointment. And the thought that came to my mind that caused this feeling was, this playlist does not have my favorite Christmas song on it. <laughs> 90 songs, five hours, can't find my favorite song on here. I couldn't believe it. It's one of the primary songs that gets me excited for the Christmas season. And it honestly is, Christmas or not, one of my favorite songs to listen to all year round. It is called The Christmas Song by Nat King Cole. And when I mean it's one of my favorite songs to listen to all year round, I mean that I listen to it all year round. Random afternoon or evening in July, and I'll be at my friend's house, and I will tell their Amazon Echo, Alexa, play The Christmas Song by Nat King Cole, and they just lose their minds during this whole thing. <laughs> just lose it. I love this song. And with this playlist having the deceptive name, Essential Christmas, it doesn't even have the original song. It has an updated version of it where John Legend's singing with Nat King Cole. Now, John Legend's fine. He's okay. I can listen to him. But he's not Nat King Cole. This Christmas song isn't the original Christmas song by Nat King Cole. I couldn't believe that this song had replaced the original one. And so without this song, I think the whole playlist is just completely pointless. <laughs> and you might say, Colin, you're really kind of taking that a little too far, or maybe you're acting like this is some objective truth that everyone knows or should know. And the response to that is, yeah, because it is. It's an objective truth. It should be. You can have a five-hour, I believe this, you can have a five-hour Christmas playlist, but if you don't have this one song, you don't have a playlist. You don't have a Christmas playlist. Now, why do I say all this, aside from wanting to vent a little bit and get that off my chest? Because I believe that that same line of reasoning 
applies to the Christmas season as a whole if you do not have Jesus at the center of it. You can come up with almost an exhaustive list of all the things that you enjoy about Christmas. Family, friends, the decorations, the music, the gifts, the trees, the movies, me personally with the eggnog, all of it. But if you don't have Jesus at the center of the Christmas season, you don't have a Christmas season. Not only because the purpose of Christmas is stripped away, but if we're just being honest too, also because without Jesus at the center of it, you really just have a really busy, full, stressed out season during the Christmas season. All those things that I just mentioned before are nice, but there's a lot of time and there's a lot of thought that goes into all of those things in a very, very short period of time. I mean, with visiting or having family in town, there's a lot of planning that goes into that. And at first you might think, wow, I can't wait to have family in town. And then December 26th or 27th rolls around. And you're like, when can my family go out of town? <laughs> gifts. I mean, gifts, it's a lot of fun to obviously receive gifts, but it's also a lot of fun to give gifts to people. But parents, I don't know how y'all do it every single year. I have no idea. I mean, you have to not only get gifts for your kids, you have to get the right gifts, or it's not going to be a fun Christmas. It's stressful in that when you put everything in the Christmas season together, while there are many good moments and while there are many good memories that are made, there's a lot of busyness and there's a lot of unrest that can go into the Christmas season. And as Jesus is the center of the Christmas season, you not only have the true purpose of Christmas, but you also have the true peace of Christmas. And it's a peace that, yes, can be a feeling or a thought, but this peace is ultimately a reality. It's a peace that doesn't change. It's a peace that doesn't come and go based off of our feelings or based off of our thoughts. And so my prayer this morning is that while we may reflect on the coming of Jesus, that we may grow in our understanding of him, not just as our Lord and our Savior, but also as the Prince of Peace. And so the title of our message this morning is this, Jesus, the Light and Prince of Peace. Jesus, the Light and Prince of Peace. We'll have a few observations from our text, and then we will close with a few applications. So the first observation that we see in this text is the present darkness, the present darkness. If anyone has read Isaiah, specifically the first eight chapters, you will see that the people of Judah are being condemned for their wickedness and their sin against God. They are worshiping idols at this point. They are manipulating their worship of God, offering uh, burnt offerings just as a checklist instead of actually repenting for their sins. And even in this time when God is correcting Judah, the people continually ignore his discipline that he's giving to them. And even through all of this, even through all this sin and rebellion, God still continues to invite them to repent one last time before judgment comes upon them. But they continue to decline. And when it comes to this present judgment, Isaiah details God's divine justice in the forms of disorder in leadership, in a form of social oppression, such as the youth taking advantage of the elderly, and also in the form of poverty and of slavery. All of these judgments on Judah are of God's divine justice. The people are not trusting in God, but instead are living for themselves and are living for worldly desires. And so in chapter 7, Isaiah, as a prophet of God, warns the king of Judah to not fear the enemy nation Assyria, who plans to invade. But then Isaiah says to the king to trust God for protection and for deliverance. And as you see in Isaiah 7, the king refuses to trust God. And because of this, the king instead will form an alliance with Assyria, an alliance that he thinks will protect Judah, but it will instead actually enslave and oppress Judah. 
And so because of the unbelief of the king and because of the wickedness of the people of Judah, God tells Isaiah that Assyria will invade and overflow Judah so that while there will be survivors from this invasion, the remnant, the survivors will be very few. This is a dark time for God's people. It's a dark time and it's dark for the people who are without trust in God but it's also a dark and gloomy time for those who do trust in God as they see their nation fall. It's dark in that Isaiah's disciples say in Isaiah 8:17 that they are waiting for God to deliver them because they acknowledge that God is hiding their face from them in a season of darkness. And at the end of chapter 8, Isaiah says that these days for God's people are filled with distress, that they're filled with anguish. And so then that brings us to our text this morning, Isaiah 9, where as Isaiah speaks of the present days of darkness, he then speaks of the day to come. Well, darkness will no longer be over the people of God. That in verse 1, it says that in the past where the northern regions of Israel experienced judgment and experienced punishment, In the future, the way of Zebulun and the way of Naphtali will be made glorious. Isaiah says that there will be a day where the darkness over the land will be no more. And instead, a great light will shine in the darkness. And that's the next observation of our text. The coming light. The coming light. In this chapter... We see that Isaiah speaks of a day, this day where light shines, as if it's already happened. And so in verse 2, Isaiah says that the people of God who were living and walking in the darkness of judgment, on this day to come, they have seen a great light. This great light was not shown on the great, and it was not shown on the upright. This light was shown on the ones living in the dark. Those who have been faithful, and those who have been unfaithful. By God's grace, in a time of darkness, and in a time of hopelessness, light and hope has finally come in a land of deep darkness. God's name and God's reputation was being dragged through the mud by these people because of their rebellion. And this nation was undeserving of having any kind of allegiance, undeserving of having any kind of relationship with the one true God. This land of darkness was where they deserved to be. And yet, because of God's grace and because of his promises that he made, he has shown a great light. In verse three, we first see that the remnant of God's people on this day has grown. That it's not just a few survivors from exile now, but we see that the nation as a whole has expanded and has multiplied in numbers by this day. And we can keep in mind uh, Hebrews 2.10 in light of this verse, along with God's promises to Abraham that God's plan of ultimate redemption of his people is to bring many sons and daughters to glory. That God's people will not be few, but God's people will be many on the day of redemption. And what you also see in verse 3 is that as the nation multiplies, we also see that the people of God properly respond now to this great light. That as the people have lived in darkness because of their rebellion, as this light has shown, they now have gained a new appreciation for God's grace. Their joy has been increased because of this light. Their joy is compared to a time of harvest, where the season of growth has been completed and the crops have become ripe. The joy of these who have seen this great light has not just increased, their joy has been completed. 
The joy has been filled. There's nothing more that needs to be added in order for this joy to be filled. And the reason for that is, as we see in verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This joy is increased and completed on this day because the burdens, because the weight, the affliction, and the oppression that the people of God has experienced, it's been broken. This paints a picture of Israel's slavery under Egypt at the time of Exodus. The yoke of his burden represents the constant suffering that is endured through oppression. The staff of his shoulder represents literally a stick or a bar that is used on the backs of slaves to inflict intense pain. And the rod of his oppressor creates the image of personal hostility that comes from a hateful overseer or manager or taskmaster. All of this pain, all of this punishment, all of this crushing weight, it has been broken as on the day of Midian. Isaiah here is referring to the battle of Midian recorded in Judges 6 and 7. And in this passage, we see the nation of Midian overtake the nation of Israel as judgment and as a result of Israel's unfaithfulness. And because of their oppression, Israel cries out in repentance, and God hears their cries. And as a response, he sends Gideon to be a judge to save Israel from the hand of Midian. And as Gideon brings his men to God, thousands of men, God dwindles Gideon's army down to just 300 men to take on the Midianites. And with just 300 men and God's strength and God's presence, Gideon's army destroyed Midian's army of 135,000 men. This story in Judges speaks of an improbable, unbelievable victory that is only possible with the hand and with the power of God. And Isaiah is saying, God has done that on this day as this light has come. Just as it was only God's power that ended the oppression of Midian, it is even more so with God's power in ending the oppression of sin and darkness when this day comes. Verse 5 continues with this idea, stating that the grip of opposing nations will no longer be on God's people, and that on this day there will be no more war. And instead of war, there will be peace. Now, as we read verses 3 through 5, what's happened on this day that has multiplied the joy of God's people? What has happened that their burdens have been taken off and that their oppressors have been conquered? Verse 6, for to us a child is born. And to us, a son is given. What's happened? A child's been born. A son is given. And notice the language here. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. This child's been given as a gift to us. This child has been given as a gift. Alec Modier has a commentary on Isaiah. And he observes from this text that this child born is from human parentage and that he is given as a gift from God. And what will this child do? The government shall be upon his shoulder. This one to be born will not have just a kind of authority. This one to be born will have executive authority. He will be king. The nations will be on his shoulders. The nations, the kingdoms, all rulers will be under his rule. 
Motier also observes here, note how the shoulders of God's people in verse four was incredibly burdensome and heavy until this one to come takes the burden and puts them on his shoulders. And his people are no longer carrying this weight. This child to be born will be the one to carry this weight. And as we see his rule and authority, we are then given titles. We are then given names of this one to come. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This one will be wise in his plans and in his ways. His decisions will be sound. His decisions will be right. There will not be any foolishness or pride or any selfish ambition in his decision making. This one's wisdom is described further in Isaiah 11 verse 2. It says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This counselor will be wise because the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Wonderful counselor here can literally be translated either a supernatural counselor or one giving supernatural counsel. And the reason why this counsel is supernatural is because this counsel is God's very counsel. Human wisdom on this day will not compare to that of this wonderful counselor's. His wisdom is deeper than any memes or tweets or Facebook posts that we might read on the internet. This wonderful counselor, his wisdom will be unmatched. This wonderful counselor is also named Mighty God. Mighty God. The Hebrew phrase here is El Gibor, which translates as warrior God. This one to come will be a strong, mighty warrior who fights on behalf of his people. And he will not only fight for his people, this child is described and is named God. God himself. El Gabor is the same name given to God in Isaiah 10, 21. Mighty God. This child will be human in nature and, and him being born into this world. But he will also be divine in his nature. He will literally be God with us. Mighty God is coming to the world to be with his people. We'll get into that a little bit later. We also see that his name is Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. This one will provide perfect fatherly care to his people. He will help those who can't help themselves. In ancient times, the term father of the nation was viewed similarly as a father of one's family to protect and to provide for his people and for his children. But the difference between this one's care and the care of earthly kings and earthly fathers is that his fatherly care will never end. It will be eternal. It will be everlasting. And we also see that this one will be named Prince of Peace. As this one to come will be mighty God, he will also be the Prince of Peace. What is peace? How would we define that? What, what do we think? What comes to mind whenever peace comes to mind? Maybe harmony or perhaps no conflict or no war between friends or nations. Or maybe it's having no anxiety, but perhaps it's security instead. And the word for peace here is shalom. The peace that this shalom talks about is described as completeness or soundness or safety, quietness, contentment, friendship, 
and also covenant relationship, particularly with God. So this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father is also the prince of shalom. He is shalom. And he provides complete, safe, content, and relational peace. It's not an individual, independent peace that we can have for ourselves and keep it for ourselves. This peace only comes from being under his rule and being in a covenant relationship with him. So who is this child? Who is this child? Who is this one with these four names? Scholars agree this prophecy was not fulfilled in Isaiah's day. So how can we know who this child is? Well, as we read the Gospels, and as we read the New Testament, we see that this prophecy 700 years after it was written is fulfilled in a child that was born and that child's name is Jesus. And we see that this Jesus was and still is worthy of all of these names and more, fulfilling this prophetic message. First of all, in verse one of Isaiah nine, we see that God has made glorious the way of Galilee. And in Matthew 4, verses 12 through 16, this Jesus of Nazareth who came into the world began his public ministry of proclaiming the gospel in the kingdom of God, starting in Galilee. And Matthew confirms that this prophecy has been fulfilled in Jesus starting his ministry. Jesus fulfills Isaiah 9-1 at the beginning of his ministry in that Jesus, as the light of peace, has shined in the darkness of Galilee. We see in the Gospels that Jesus is the wonderful counselor in many different ways, blowing people away with his wisdom, but not just his wisdom, but also with his living. Mark 1, 22 And they, those in the synagogue, were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who has authority and not as the scribes. And it was not just that Jesus' teaching and counsel was incredible. His life backed it up. It wasn't just that Jesus was a nice man or a good person. Jesus was sinless. Jesus was perfect. He was holy. First Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus taught supernaturally, and he lived supernaturally. Jesus also is revealed to be mighty God himself. And we see that in Matthew 1, verses 21 through 23 where an angel of the Lord appears before Joseph and tells Joseph about his virgin bride to be Mary. He says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. This prophecy is seen in Isaiah 7, just a couple chapters back from where we're reading. And Matthew observes that this prophecy has been ultimately fulfilled in the coming of this one Jesus. And not only does Matthew observe this, Jesus claims this. In John 8, 58, Jesus is speaking to a group of, of high priests and says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's not saying that he's 2,000 years old whenever he's talking here. He's not saying that he existed, he was the first person to ever exist on this earth, that he was in some way created. But he is saying, as God said to Moses with the burning bush, 
that Jesus is himself the great I am. He's saying that he is God existing before anything else ever existed. Jesus is himself mighty God. Jesus is also revealed to be everlasting father in his care and in his protection over his people. In Isaiah 9, Isaiah is not talking about the Trinity or confusing the Trinity in any way. What he is talking about is the care and the protection that a father or a king has over his people. Jesus being the king of kings cares for his people with a divine and fatherly care that is unmatched. Matthew 4.23 says that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus was not only wise in his teachings, not only was he sinless, he cared and he still cares for those who look to him. And he keeps them. If you are in the care of Jesus, you are not going anywhere. You are in his fatherly care. He protects you and he keeps you. And finally, Jesus is revealed to be the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Jesus came to counsel and teach of the kingdom of God. Jesus came to show that he is God and that he is the way to the Father. Jesus also came to show his protection and compassion over those who come to him. And Jesus also came to give supernatural, objective, true peace. John 14, 27, he tells his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. As the prince of shalom, Jesus has given shalom to his people. And is this shalom a feeling or is it an emotion? No, this peace, this peace is a reality, regardless of maybe how we feel. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5, speaks of the Messiah and describes this Messiah as a suffering servant. And as the suffering servant, Isaiah says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This peace is not an emotion. This peace that Jesus gives to us is a real and complete peace with God. Jesus has come to bring us peace with God by taking our sins, taking our punishment for himself. Jesus came so that we can be with God again and so that we can be at peace with him. What a glorious truth that the Prince of Peace has come to save us so that we may have peace with God. And back to Isaiah 9, not only does Jesus come with peace, this peace is here to stay. As we see the final observation of our text, and that is the eternal peace. The eternal peace. In Isaiah 9, 7, we see that as Jesus' reign and rule increases, so also does this peace increase. Now, as we think of our world today, and as we think of earthly rulers today, 
peace doesn't usually spread as a ruler's power increases. In fact, the opposite. As someone's rule, as someone's government increases, what usually increases with it is oppression and bloodshed, usually. But not under the rule of King Jesus. Not under the rule of the Prince of Peace. It's not oppression and it's not bloodshed that increases, but instead it is peace, it is justice, and it is righteousness that all increases as the Prince of Peace's rule expands. Notice two things with this. Notice one, the eternal reign of this prince, the eternal reign. There will be no end. Jesus' rule and his peace will forever exist and it will forever expand. Also, from this time forth and forevermore, all kings, all kingdoms will have their end, but not King Jesus and not his kingdom. And notice too, the certainty of this reign. There will be no end. And notice that last statement. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As on the day of Midian, God will fully do this. And today, we know and we have seen this child has already been born. The son of God, the son of David has come. And as we see in his first coming, the cosmic battle against sin and death has already been decided. And it's already been won. Sin and death have been defeated by the death and the resurrection of King Jesus. And the final blow will come to sin and to death. Death will be defeated for all time when he comes again. Isaiah describes the first coming of Jesus in this passage, but what Isaiah also describes is a day that hasn't happened yet. He describes it as a day of eternal peace with God. Peace with God has already come because the Prince of Peace has come. But that peace on this day to come will forever be and will forever expand. A few applications to close. Let us be a people, let us be a people amazed by fulfilled prophecy. Let us be a people amazed by fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Jesus came. 700. We may marvel at the people who predicted that Tennessee would go 10-2 and two this year, just a few months in advance. We marvel at that, right? But we see this passage 700 years before Jesus came. There are at least 35 prophecies that Isaiah wrote in this book that is fulfilled in the birth, the life, and the death of Jesus Christ. At least 35 and then when you consider the entire New Old Testament as a whole, books written before even Isaiah wrote his scroll, in the Old Testament as a whole, Jesus fulfilled at least 300 different prophecies in his life as the Messiah. That should amaze us. That should blow us away. And this is me speaking for myself. This is convicting for me. I may often find myself reading the Gospels, seeing Jesus teach or say something or do something. And notice that the gospel writer says that Jesus has fulfilled this particular prophecy. And then I just don't think much about it. Or maybe I just think, well, yeah, of course he fulfilled this prophecy. Like just really being cold to this idea, being cold to this reality. Instead of being absolutely blown away at the word of God and being blown away at its message. Prophecy has been often described as God's calling card. That when God says something will be done, it will be done, and it shows evidence of who he is. And we should recognize and worship 
God, when we see the fulfillment of prophecy, specifically in the prophecies pertaining to Jesus, for example, in Luke 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to a group of shepherds and told them to go to Bethlehem because of the Christ, because of the Savior of the world has been born. And when they saw that little boy lying in a manger and swaddling cloth, their response was worship. They worshiped and they gave praise to God. Let us be a people astounded by fulfilled prophecy. And let that remind us that we're not just holding a book with historically accurate events, with great teachings and great wisdom. We are holding the very words of God. I pray that we may be a people amazed by prophecy. Let us also be a people captivated by the Prince of Peace. Let us be a people captivated by the Prince of Peace. When you read Isaiah 9, 6, and you see Jesus as the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, understand that this is your Savior. This is your God. This is your King who you belong to. Let us be a people who were overcome with worship and praise and thankfulness for our great and almighty King Jesus. Let us be receptive and in awe at his supernatural counsel. Let us be receptive and in awe of his divinity and in his power. Let us be receptive and in awe of his fatherly love and care for us. And let us be receptive and in awe of his peace that surpasses all understanding, that surpasses all other feeling. His peace that he has given to us is with God. Let our minds, let our hearts, let our lives be filled with worshiping and serving our King Jesus for who he is. And let us daily strive to know our King more. Let us also be a people marked by peace. Let us be a people marked by peace. So I've been given a hard time by some of our high school students because I often quote uh, Christian rappers in my sermons. And so as a response, I'm going to quote another because it fits here. (laughs) One of my favorite rappers, KB, once said in a song, People don't care if you keep Christ in your Christmas if they cannot see the Christ in the Christian. Right? That's pretty good, right? (laughs) What does he mean by that? Meaning, you can say that Jesus is the reason for the season. You can say, you can keep saying that Christ is in Christmas and we should keep it that way. You would be right. But no one's going to see Christ if they don't see a people marked by Christ. There are many ways that people can see that Christ is in someone. And one of those ways, in a world full of hurry, in a world full of busyness, in a world full of a lot of fears, a lot of distractions, a lot of anxiety, one of those ways that people can see Christ in someone is that they see a people that are marked by a divine, supernatural, unmoving peace. We've been in Romans this fall. And I'm so thankful for Pastor Joe Kappel teaching a few weeks ago from Romans 5 and clarifying that when Paul teaches that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that that peace is not a subjective feeling, but it is an objective reality. And I pray that as we behold Jesus, we let the truth of having peace with God through him be our foundation. And let that shape our feelings and in our thoughts. Because that's really the reality of this whole thing. Any kind of feeling of God or godly peace that we may have comes from and is founded on the truth of godly peace. Any feeling that we may have of peace any feeling that we may have of rest, all of that stems from the truth of the peace that we have with God. 
Let that truth be our foundation. And the freeing reality of that is, whether you are feeling at peace or not, if Christ is your king, the peace with God that you have will never change. That's comforting for me. As someone who's my feelings up and down, up and down almost every single day. And to know that the peace that I have with God through Jesus Christ doesn't change or depend on any kind of emotion or thought that I may be feeling. <laughs> let that be our foundation for peace and let us be marked by peace. But as the reality of God's peace becomes something we do think on more, let that peace mark us in our everyday lives and thoughts. Don't let the dread or the worry or the fears of conflict or of finances or of your job or your family or Christmas shopping consume you. Don't let those fears and those worries consume you as you can trust Christ for your peace with God, and as you can trust Christ with your eternity, you can also trust Christ with your tomorrow. You can trust Christ with all of your days. We think so much we can trust in Christ with our eternity. But let's trust Christ with today and the worries of today. And then when tomorrow comes, we trust him with the worries of tomorrow because he's our Prince of Peace. He is our King Jesus. Let us be marked by peace. Now to close, it's December 4th, and the Christmas season may already be a season for some of us that's not marked with peace. And perhaps it's not even really marked with like worries or busyness or fears. Perhaps the Christmas season's been marked with pain and with grief. If anyone has lost someone close to them in their lives over the years, the holidays and the Christmas season feels just a lot harder. And as we check our church emails and as we read Facebook posts from dear friends, it's been a notably dark and difficult start to this season at West Park horrible diagnoses that we weren't expecting, sickness, deaths of loved family and friends. A lot of pain has come during this season. And my prayer is that as we reflect on our King Jesus, the Prince of Peace, that we may come to our Prince of Peace with our sorrows that he took up for us that we come to him with our tears, that we come to him with our pain, and that we offer these things to him. And that as we give him our pain, as we give him our sorrow, I pray that we may experience the glorious exchange of him giving himself as a return. We think if perhaps we offer our pain or offer our tears or offer our sorrows to God that perhaps in return we would be given answers. And perhaps we may be given answers. Perhaps we, we may be given reasons for stuff. But ultimately, what God gives in the times where we offer our pain to him, the best gift that he gives us in exchange is himself to comfort us to wipe our tears, to hold our hand through this difficult season and to experience and to understand the objective reality of the peace with God that comes from him. Let that peace that you have with God, let that peace that Jesus has given to you, let that comfort you in a season like this. Know that in Jesus today, you have complete and relational peace with God. And there will be a day where this peace will rule and reign forever.
and death and sorrow will be no more when he is in ultimate rule. Notice the line, the last line of Isaiah 9, 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It will happen. This day is coming. Let us keep our eyes on this day. Jesus came and gave us peace with God through the taking of our sins and through the taking of our sorrows and putting them on himself. Let us take comfort in that and let us reflect on that wonderful truth as we take the bread and cup for communion. Let me pray for us. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, we come to you this morning and we just praise you for what you have done for us, all that you have done for us. We were walking in darkness. We were, a land of, we were in a land of darkness. And yet when we were at our worst, you shined a great light on us. And that light is your son, Jesus Christ. And we are so thankful for just the truth that he has come, that he has taken our sins, that he has taken our sorrow so that we may experience peace with you, complete peace with you. I pray, Father, that as we come to you this morning and as we continue to anticipate and to remember the day that you came to this world, Lord Jesus. I pray that as we reflect on this, that we may worship you and that we may offer ourselves to you. I pray for those who who know you, Lord, to take comfort knowing that they have peace with you and it is a complete peace. And I pray that those who may be in sorrow, that those may be in grief, that they may take comfort in going to the Prince of Peace, the man of sorrows. And Lord, I pray for those in here who may not know you, who may not understand the significance of Jesus coming to this world. I pray that you may open their eyes and their hearts this morning to accept the Prince of Peace and to embrace the reality of this godly peace that they have with you. Bless this time of communion, God, as we reflect on Lord Jesus, your coming and your sacrifice for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.